lest we jump the gun with all this Christmas stuff. What was this week? This week was my favorite holiday, which is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I've said this many times, even here in this pulpit, that Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday because it's all the food, it's all the fun, it's all the party, it's all the family without the gifts. And that makes it easy and low stress. And so praise God for Thanksgiving, the real best holiday that there is. Now, that, that's really a lot of good stuff. Fun, family, football. I mean, we could just list the Fs. Uh, there are so many wonderful things that are a part of Thanksgiving. But as good as all that stuff is, the best part about Thanksgiving truly is pausing and stopping so that we can be thankful for all that God has done for us. Last week at the thankful service here at church, and the Sunday evening was wonderful. It was wonderful to be encouraged by fellow believers who stopped and thought about what God had done for them and then gave a testimony to the church of all the good things that God has done. I loved that service, and it is so much fun. Now, I have noticed something over time. Uh, a phenomenon. It, it's not unique to Thanksgiving. It's something that, that comes up all the time, but it's a, a phenomenon around thankfulness. It goes like this. The less you feel like you deserve something, the more gratitude you feel when you get it. Okay? The less you feel like you deserve something, the more gratitude you feel when you get it. All right, so just think about those random acts of kindness that happen to you out of the blue. You know, no, no reason, no rhyme, but somebody just wants to say thank you, or somebody just wants to say I love you, somebody wants to say I see you, and when that happens, you're totally baffled because you, you don't deserve it. It's not your birthday, it's not a holiday, it's just because, and it makes you feel good. You feel gratitude because you did not deserve that, that day. All right, similarly, when you know you should be in the doghouse, now this goes either way, whether you're a husband or a wife, and you have been a total jerk in your marriage, and things have been bad the last day or two, and you know it's your fault. But your spouse comes up to you filled with grace and mercy and gives you that big hug and just says, I love you. And in that moment, you think, why? <laughs> right? And you say, thank you. That hug, that I love you, means more in those moments because you know you don't deserve them. Similarly, I think it's uh, uh, easy to, to kind of not feel grateful whenever you get something you're entitled to. I think many of, many of us are grateful for jobs that pay and help us pay the bills. We're thankful for the job, but when we get that paycheck, we don't like send a thank you note to our boss, right? Because we earned it. We deserved it. So even though it's a great thing to have and it's a blessing and it helps us uh, take care of our families because we've earned it, the gratefulness, though we're grateful for the job, the gratefulness for the paycheck is genuinely, uh, generally a little lacking because we earned it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the calling of Peter. He is the first disciple mentioned by name in Luke's gospel. And I want you to pay attention in this story how he responds to Jesus. When he encounters Jesus, he, he responds understanding that he doesn't deserve what Jesus has to offer. 
Jesus uh, expresses his love, and throughout the story so far in the Gospel of Luke, we have seen Jesus express his authority. Here we get to see him express his mercy and even his generosity. And we're going to see Jesus do this, and then we're going to look at Peter's response. And what we're going to see is that Peter sees himself as totally unworthy, unentitled, and completely humble. He sees himself as unworthy, unentitled, and humble. Interestingly, the Gospels tell us more about the the call of the Apostle Peter than any of the other disciples. When, When we look at the whole picture of all four Gospels, we get a sense that that Jesus had his heart set on calling Peter, and that, that Peter may have been a bit of a skeptic. At least he was one who needed some proof before he believed. Now, I want to read again for us a passage that we will probably continue to read as we go through the book of Luke. We've read it several times, but as we think about the call of Peter, I want you guys to remember Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, a passage we've read several times, and again, we will read several more throughout this series. It says this, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what Luke says is he wants his readers to have certainty about the things they have been taught regarding Jesus Christ. He wants the, the, the certainty that we have to be rooted in the experience and testimony of others. Now, when we step back and look at what all four Gospels have to say about the calling of Peter, we really begin to see that Peter has certainty because of what he has seen. He he gets to be a kind of example for us of what Luke is trying to do. Luke wants to set for us an example in his writings so that we can be certain of the things that we've been taught. Similarly, we see in the life of Peter this certainty that comes from the things that he has observed. However, I think, I think for many of us, when we think about the call of Peter, we often think about the call of Peter from the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, and not necessarily from the book of Luke. So let me read for you the, uh, the calling of Peter from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. 
Now, if you're like me, that, that word immediately just jumped out at me. Uh, on first read, it looks like Jesus just said, hey, you, follow me. And they're like, me? This? Oh, okay. You know, and they just get up and they walk away. And that's that. And we even see that same idea echoed in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 gives us a very similar story as what we read in Matthew 4. Mark 1, starting in verse 16, says this. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, and who's Peter? Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right, so we see this. Follow me, Simon and Andrew, immediately follow him. And then he says, follow me to James and John. And immediately they leave their dad with the boats. They leave the family business, and they go. Now, when we look at both Matthew and Mark, what we see here is that they are both placing the emphasis in the story on uh, where they're going. The emphasis is not necessarily on where they've been. The emphasis is not necessarily on their backstory. What, what Mark and Matthew want us to see is immediately they follow Jesus. As they're telling the story, the focus is forward. The focus is on what's next. After this encounter with Jesus, what happened? Immediately, they followed Jesus. And what we get to see here is that Jesus has tremendous power of connection uh, over men. And we see here that, that men feel so uh, connected with Jesus that they're willing to forsake their career. They're willing to walk away from the living that they have uh, been earning for their family. They're willing to even walk away from some of their obligations to their families in order to follow Jesus. Matthew and Mark are showing us that Jesus is so compelling and so authoritative that people would leave everything to follow him. When he calls, you answer. And Jesus doesn't do this through appeal to his title or by flexing some kind of uh, physical authority here on earth. He does it by a call. An invitation has so much power that they feel compelled to follow him. So when we read the way that Matthew and Mark emphasize the compelling nature of the ministry of Jesus, we can miss that this compelling of Jesus does not mean that following Jesus is baseless. We don't see that Peter follows Jesus based on nothing. When we step back and we get to see the whole picture, looking at the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, we get to see that Matthew and Mark are hitting the climax. They're hitting the high point where they encounter Jesus and immediately they walk away from what they've been doing and go forward. But as we look at what the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke have to say, we get to see the events that led up to that point. And what we see is that Peter was a bit of a skeptic, slow to come around, but eventually Jesus showed him who he was, and Peter had to respond. 
Let's, let's, uh, let's jump into the Gospel of John here and see the call of Peter according to John's Gospel. Now, John's Gospel mentions Peter the earliest in Jesus' ministry. Now, as we look at the book of John for a moment, uh, we need to remember that the Gospel of John is the least concerned about the order of events of any Gospel writer. So, when we look at the Gospel of John, he is trying to communicate a theological point. He's trying to encapsulate meaning. And so as he does this, he's not afraid to reorder events in order to stress a theological point or to hit at a meaning he's trying to convey. Now for us, in our Western 21st century mindset, that's ludicrous, right? Why would you do that? Order matters. Put it in chronological order for the sake of our sanity. Please, John. John wasn't an American in the 21st century. He was an Easterner. He was a Jew. He didn't have the same compulsion to put things in order that we do. Okay, so what we need to do is see what's the meaning that he's trying to convey. So he puts the, uh, the, the first encounter with Peter uh, much earlier in the ministry of Jesus. Let's take a look at this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, picking up in verse 35 through 42. It says this, the next day, again, John, now this is not the author of the book of John, this is John the Baptist. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, so whose disciples was he with? These are disciples of John the Baptist, okay? And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So when do we see Peter and Andrew first come on the scene? This is before the temptation of Jesus. This is before the beginning of the Galilean ministry. Andrew and Peter are on the scene when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Okay? So they got to see this. At least Andrew did. Peter may not have been there. Okay? So at least Andrew did. Now let's pick up in verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. So uh, the other Gospels put this uh, renaming of Peter in another place. But what we see here for John is John looks like he wants us to know which Simon are we talking about? Which Andrew are we talking about? This is the one called Cephas. This is the one called Peter, the rock. When did, when did Andrew meet Jesus? All the way at the beginning of this ministry. When did he tell his brother who Jesus was? All the way at the beginning of his ministry before Peter or before Jesus ever came to Capernaum where we read last week in Luke chapter 4. All right, so, so we see this begin to happen. Andrew spends the day with Jesus and seems to be convinced of what John said. So what does Andrew do? He goes and he tells his brother that he's found 
the Christ. Now, we fast forward what's likely several weeks or maybe even months after Jesus' baptism. He goes out into the wilderness and he prepares for his ministry and has the 40 days of temptation. All right, then he comes out of the wilderness by the power of the Spirit and he begins to teach all over Galilee. He even goes back to, what did we read? Back to his hometown of Nazareth and he's rejected there. Then he goes back to the Sea of Galilee and preaches some more. And this is where we jumped in last week. And this is where Peter comes on the scene. All right? So what, what's happening? Jesus has expressed his authority. He's expressed his authority through his, his preaching and teaching. Last week we saw he expressed his authority as he uh, demonstrated his power over spiritual forces when he cast out the demon. And last week we saw that he expressed his authority over the physical forces when he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So at this point, we know that that Peter was probably in the synagogue where the demon-possessed man was cast out. We know that he invited him to his home where Jesus had uh, uh, healed his mother-in-law. And we know that he had heard from Andrew, uh, who John the Baptist said that Jesus was. And he had heard his teaching throughout Galilee. Now, where we find ourselves in today's passage in Luke chapter 5, we find another crowd following Jesus. This crowd is so big that when he, he, he finds himself backing up, he's on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And who does he happen to see there but Peter, the same guy whose house he was in as he healed his mother-in-law. And he thinks, Jesus thinks, all right, how am I going to address this crowd where they can see me and I'm not being crushed by them? He says to Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat? And he gets on his boat and begins to address the crowd. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And then what we're going to see here as we look at Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, is that the immediately mentioned in Matthew and Mark takes place at the end of this episode that we see in Luke 5, 1 through 11. It says this. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's the same body of water. Verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats which was Simon's, so Simon Peter, same guy, he asked him to put out from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets, and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything 
and followed Jesus. Now, I love this passage, okay, because I think, I think Peter and I have a couple of things in common. One of them being when I'm doing mindless work, I love to listen to a podcast, right? I'll, I'll stick my earbuds in and I'll listen to a podcast. I'll listen to an audio book. I love to listen to somebody talk or teach while I'm doing something with my hands. So here we have uh, Peter basically doing the, the uh, first century equivalent of a live stream, right? So he's, he's next to Jesus. Jesus is in his boat. He's teaching, and he's there cleaning out his nets. He's making sure the day is done. What a fruitless day or night, I guess, as they fish. They didn't catch anything. But he's going to listen to Jesus as Jesus sets in his boat, and he's going to clean all the junk out of his nets. And then this carpenter, I just want you to think about that, right? This carpenter says to Peter, thank you for letting me use your boat. Go fish some more. All right, so a guy who has no expertise when it comes to fishing now tells him how to fish. Now, I just want you to think about this, and this is kind of for free, this is a little fun little thing. When you think about the authority of Jesus being demonstrated over the last chapter or so, we've seen his authority over, uh, in his teaching, over uh, physical illness, over spiritual forces and demons. Now, now, Jesus has vocational authority too. The carpenter tells the fisherman what to do, and he's right. I just think that's hilarious. So Jesus tells Peter what to do, and we see the exasperation in Peter. He sighs. I mean, you can almost hear it through the pages of Scripture. <sighs> okay, fine. If you tell me to, I will. Now, I want you to think about this, though. He'd been out fishing all night. Jesus is basically telling him to start his closing procedures all over again. Okay, he'd already cleaned his nets. He was waiting for Jesus to get out of his boats. He was done. He was done. And Jesus says, I want, you, I want you to do it again. I want you to do it again. And so Peter gives up his time to Jesus, just like Jesus had given up his time for him when Jesus came to his house to heal his mother-in-law. So listen to what Peter says. Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. At your word. The original language here is this declaration. At your declaration, I will do this. Because you said so, I will do this. The emphasis is on his word. All right, now the, the word declaration is used here uh, in, in our passage in, in verse 5 here, but throughout Luke, we have seen the word of Jesus, logos, uh, used several times to convey Jesus' authority. Luke chapter 4, verse 22 says this, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Luke 4, 32 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Luke chapter 4, verse 36 says, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this Word, And then we even saw in this chapter today, in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus' teaching is identified as the Word of God. Now here we come in verse 5, and Jesus makes a declaration with his words, and that declaration has authority. 
And so Peter says, at your word, I will let down the nets. And Jesus does something that only the Son of God could do. He creates such an amazing fishing story, even a fisherman wouldn't tell it unless it were true. All right? Peter's response tells us that in all his years of fishing, he'd never seen anything like this. He had never even lied about something like this. Right? It was so outlandish. His fish wasn't this big. It was so big, it broke the nets and sunk two boats. Now, that's, that's a fisherman's tale, right? So Jesus did this miracle for Peter right there. And we get this sense that as the nets were breaking and they were pulling the fish into the boats and the boats were taking on water and barely made it to shore, we get the sense that, that Peter says, Andrew was right. John the Baptist was right. He has his own moment where he's standing on the shore and he says to himself, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Peter's response to this encounter with Jesus is, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. He called him master. He answered his word. Jesus showed up in power. And his response to Jesus is depart from me. The realization of who Jesus was became a realization to Peter of who he really was. When he understood that he was face to face with the Messiah, the Lamb of God, instantly, or should we say immediately, Peter recognizes who he is. Jesus was holy. Peter knew he was a sinner. And in his sin, he was humbled. He was not entitled to that haul of fish. We don't see Peter say, I deserve this. This blessing was owed me. I claimed this blessing. When the blessing came, it humbled Peter. And his response to the blessing of God was to realize he was a sinner and that he was standing in the presence of divinity. Depart from me. Do you, it's almost like what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. When, when uh, Isaiah encounters God, he says, Woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. It's a confession when he encountered who God was, Isaiah says, oh, it's going to undo me. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord. And then look at Jesus' response. Jesus engages Peter by saying these words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, where have we seen those words in the book of Luke. Do not be afraid. We saw them when the angels showed up, right? When Zechariah encounters an angel, the angel says, do not be afraid. When Mary encounters an angel, what do we see? Do not be afraid. When Peter understands who Jesus is, Jesus says, 
do not be afraid. Isn't that amazing? To see Jesus, or Luke, weave in a little declaration of who Jesus is. He is not of this world. He is something special. And just like these angels came with an important message, Jesus comes with an important message about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, do not be afraid. Now this is our, our main point of application. All right, where, how do we need to process this story? It took Peter a while to see who Jesus was. Despite the way that Mark and Matthew present uh, Peter's conversion, the big picture tells us that, that though Peter was interested in Jesus, though he seemed to like what Jesus had to say and respected him as one who healed his mother-in-law, he was still slow to recognize what his brother Andrew seemed to have already taken for granted at the word of John the Baptist. But, But what we need to see here is this. When he recognized who Jesus was, it forced him to deal with who he was as a man. Peter saw at that moment just how undeserving he was. And remember, when do we feel the most gratitude? When we feel the most undeserving. When Peter recognizes who Jesus is and he recognizes who he is, we see this humility of being undeserving of the presence of God. When King David realized his sin against the Lord, listen to what he says in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of my favorite psalms. It says this, starting in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I think that, that one of the messages that our world tries to tell us is that, that we shouldn't feel guilty. All right, When we've done something wrong, when we have uh, lived a certain way, guilt is bad. All right, I think our, that's one of the messages that our world tries, tries to tell us. But what do we see here from David? When David is feeling guilty of his sin, it moves him toward God. It makes him appeal to God's grace and mercy. What we see here is when, when we feel guilt, it, it could very well be the Holy Spirit working in our lives, bringing his conviction upon us so that we might get things right with God. This guilt of our sin leads us to cling to the mercy and grace of God. And so we see Peter here, or uh, David here, cry out to God, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly for my iniquity, cleanse me of my sin. When he saw who God was and who, is, who he was, his response was to confess, confess his sin. Now listen to how David ends the psalm. All right, he confessed his sin to God. He, he cried out to God for his mercy. And listen to how David ends the psalm, starting in verse 13. It says, then... Once he experiences the grace of God and the mercy of God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, what's interesting is, as David receives the mercy of God, as he experiences the grace of God, his response is to declare God's goodness. His response is to tell others. His response is to teach others. He is broken by who his sin has revealed him to be. He's marveling in the grace of Christ. And yet he says in the middle there, don't cast me out of your presence. Do not cast me from your presence, God. And what we see here then is a response to receiving the grace of mercy of of God and him getting to remain in God's presence. The response is a declaration of praise. The response is teaching others the ways of God. Now, look at Peter. He says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinner. And then what is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is this, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus' response to the humility of Peter is to invite him into his ministry. Do you see that? Peter says, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I have mercy. Peter says, get away from me, Lord. And Jesus says, come on, join my work. I have a job for you. I've caught you, just like you've caught all those fish. Let's go catch some more men. Join me. Be a part of it. In response to you receiving mercy, be a part of the ministry of the kingdom of God and declare his mercy and grace to other sinners just like you. That's what he's invited us into as followers of Jesus Christ. When we, when we take stock of who we are dead in our sins, our response should be, away from me, Lord, I am a sinner. We should be low. We should be humble compared to God's holiness. But in God's grace and mercy, he does not leave the distance. He does not leave the distance. If we confess that he is Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He crosses that chasm and he invites us into his presence. He puts his arm around with us and says, come be on mission with me. He saves, he forgives, and he invites us into a ministry of reconciliation for other people. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how are we going to respond to this message today? What is our challenge? Our challenge is this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope you can see the way that Jesus revealed himself to Peter, that he he did miracles before him, 
and that at the testimony of those who've come before, and hopefully the Spirit working on your heart, you're ready to know more about who Jesus is and perhaps place your faith in Jesus Christ today. If that's you, while we're singing the songs, I'll be down front. I would love to talk with you more. If, if you want to talk to a believer next to you, I'm sure they would love to point you to who Jesus is. But if you're here today and you already know that Jesus is the Christ, and you've accepted him as your Savior, then I want to challenge you with this, and that is gratitude. Remember how much Jesus has done for you. Remember how undeserving we are of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. But remember that he gave it anyway. And praise his name like David did. Be grateful that he has cleansed us of our sin. He says, hey, listen, you know what? Sacrifices would be, are great, burnt offerings are good, but those things don't matter if our heart is not broken by our sin and we aren't declaring the goodness of God. So as we sing these songs, this is our opportunity to respond to him. However God is moving in your hearts, now's our chance to respond. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you send your grace and mercy. Lord, in our gratitude, help us to respond like Peter, to receive the invitation to participate in your work. Help us to tell others of the good that you have done. We thank you that you are the forgiver of sins and the writer of wrongs, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are a good and wonderful God. Let us not forget it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stay with us and let's worship today.